0: So we live in a cinematic world, and the, in that cinematic world, the concept or the idea or the plot in many movies has been the idea of someone from beyond our world coming to Earth, especially in recent decades. There's a multitude of movies where the plot is a visitor from another planet or someone outside of our atmosphere. And if you've ever watched one of these movies, you notice the interest of the characters in the movie and the audience watching the movie. They're desperate to gain insight as to what the purpose is of these beings showing up on our planet, right? Sometimes it's a hostile takeover. Sometimes it's a warning of how we as humans have been treating the earth. Sometimes it's a rescue to take some of us with them into their home. Now, I know there's debate about life on other planets, and that's not the point today, right? It's not really addressed in Scripture, so it's not really something we really should have to worry about that much. But I think we need to take a note of how important society places the idea of listening to those outside of our own world, right? Even if it's in a movie, they put this importance on, they have to find out what are they here to tell us. What have they come to do? Because in today's passage, there's this phrase of he who comes from above, or he who comes from heaven. And if this description is true of Jesus, which it is, it has greater implications for our lives than any movie about aliens ever could. Right? So we saw Jesus finish his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. The disciple John finished his commentary on that conversation. And now we come back to a situation where we see John the Baptist and his disciples, and they're watching Jesus. John the Baptist gives a description of Jesus that then launches the disciple John into another commentary about Jesus. And that commentary begins with the phrase, "...he who comes from above." And we're going to see what that means for our own lives. In regards to that phrase of he who comes from above, we're going to see three aspects. The first one is we're going to see John the Baptist's posture towards him. We're going to see who this one really is that has come from above. And we're going to see what it means to believe in him who has come from above. So if you have your Bible, we're in John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 22. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, it says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. and has given all things into his hand whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god remains on him so in this first part we see john the baptist posture towards jesus right i call it the desire to decrease So John the disciple tells us that Jesus and John the Baptist are baptizing in the same area because there was plenty of water available there. And then he makes a note here, right? John the Baptist has not yet been been put in prison. And he probably mentions this note because the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have already been written by this time. And all of them have John the Baptist in prison when Jesus' ministry begins. So John the disciple is saying here, everything I'm explaining to you happened before that beginning that they talked about. All of this is still taking place. We see John give a lot more detail to that beginning part before Jesus' ministry, public ministry really begins. But as we get into verse 25, we see a discussion start. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, John the Baptist's disciples start arguing and debating with a Jew over, over what? Purification. Where have we seen this before? When Jesus turned water into wine, where did they put the water? Into the purification jars. And this was a hint, right? That there's a new way of purification that's coming. That Jesus is introducing a new age where you are, you are purified by the cross, by his blood, not by the old ways. And he says the same thing, right? To Nicodemus, he says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Water was used for cleansing. We saw that in Ezekiel. So that was a purification thing. So it's not unexpected that a debate would have arose out of this. That the Jews who are used to this old way would have said... We're gonna, we, we don't quite see what you're getting at here, especially because baptism was also seen as a way of purification. So John the Baptist is baptizing as a forerunner to Jesus, and Jesus is now baptizing. So the Jews are coming in wondering, saying, what's going on here? This isn't fitting our way of, of purification we've always done. And the Baptist's disciples are troubled by this discussion. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now we know that all doesn't necessarily mean all in this point, right? Because John the ba- we just saw in verse 23, John the Baptist is still baptizing people. But the whole point is made clear, right? There's a large gathering going to Jesus and leaving John the Baptist. And his disciples get worried about this. Right? They're like, um, we, we don't want to see our rabbi, our teacher's ministry start to shrink. We don't want him to lose influence which means they probably didn't catch what he said back in chapter 1, verse 27, right? Where John the Baptist says, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. They're missing that this guy is much greater than the Baptist, but they're concerned about John the Baptist's ministry. But John the Baptist uses this concern to unveil truth to them once again, where he describes his desire to decrease and his desire to increase Jesus. First of all, in verse 27, he says that all that one has is given to him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Right? So we know here that John the Baptist is saying all that Jesus has has been given to him from heaven. And then we see John the disciple later say not only has it been given to him from heaven, he is from heaven. He's actually come from there. So how much greater is that, that he's not just received from heaven, he's actually from heaven. John the Baptist is saying, everything I've been given up to this point has been from heaven. Everything Jesus is having at this point has been given to him from heaven. And then he just restates to them in verse 28 what he's already told them. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You see, his disciples are acting like he is the Christ, that he's the one who needs to be having all the influence. And he says, I've already told you, I'm not him. I've been just sent before him. And then as we get into verse 29, we see him start to use marriage language again. Remember, Jesus' first sign was done at a wedding. And we talked about how the marriage covenant has an illustration of the covenant between God and his people. So it makes sense that John the Baptist would continue to expand on this illustration. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. You see this great following starting to come to Jesus, and John the Baptist is saying, That's the bride. Right In the Old Testament, the bride was Israel, God's chosen people. In the New Testament, the church is the bride. Right, The church is, is God's people now. And so all these people who are coming to Jesus, these people who are believing in Jesus, John the Baptist says, the bride's going to the bridegroom. What else would you expect to happen? The bridegroom receives the bride. Nobody else would receive the bride except the groom. So the John the Baptist then, in relationship to seeing Jesus as the groom, the bridegroom, John the Baptist understands his rightful place. Continuing verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. He goes on to call himself the friend of the bridegroom, right? The friend or the best man of the groom, right? In this culture... The friend of the groom, the best man of the groom, was the one who did a lot of the preparation work for the wedding. So it makes sense. John the Baptist has prepared the way for Jesus, right? He's the one who makes straight the path for the Lord. And now he stands, and he hears the voice of the groom, and he sees the bride going to the groom, and he doesn't respond with the jealousy his disciples want him to respond with. He doesn't say, I want the bride for myself. He doesn't even say, please just let me keep a piece of the bride. Instead, look at how he responds. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist instead responds with rejoicing. He hears Christ's voice and is filled with joy because the bride is going to the bridegroom. The verse even ends right with him saying that his joy has been completed because he has now seen this covenant brought to life in front of his own eyes. What John the Baptist has been longing for, his joy is now complete. I don't know who you all chose as your maid of honor or best man or whoever it was in your, standing beside you at your wedding, but I struggled with this decision, right? Because we all want someone who's going to respond like this. We all, all want someone standing beside us that is going to be the best person to celebrate with us, the person who's going to rejoice in the best way possible with us as we get married. So I wrestled with it. I chose some some friends from college to stand up with me, some friends from childhood. I even had my biological brother stand next to my best man, but I had to figure out who was the person that would rejoice the most with me. And I chose my dad. Not because it was a sweet moment, though it was, but I chose my dad because there's nobody else in this world that knows me like he does. There's nobody else that would have seen me at my utmost highs and my very lows and seen every aspect of my life. And on top of that, not only did he know me fully, but he loved my wife fully. As our relationship had begun to grow, it was clear that he loved my wife. So I knew upon asking him to stand beside me, there was going to be no joy, no one who could rejoice in the way that my dad could as I made my covenant with Lydia. It's the same here with John the Baptist. He doesn't want Jesus' place. He says, My joy is complete to watch the bride go to the groom. So much was this this his desire that he ends his conversation, he ends this quote with this beautiful statement in verse 30. His posture towards Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. Notice the word must. John the Baptist isn't saying it's a good idea to increase Jesus. He's saying this is absolutely necessary in my life. In order for me as John the Baptist to align myself with God's will at this point in my life, it is absolutely necessary to lessen myself and make more of Jesus. And it's the same posture for all believers that have ever come after him. Less of me, more of him. So, brothers and sisters, your life posture as a Christian has to be, it must be, less of you, more of him. This goes contrary to every aspect of your sinful flesh. The old you promotes the exact opposite every day when you wake up. The old you says, more of me, only him if necessary. And we forget how subtle this mentality can slip into our lives. For example, when you have a rough day, and you come home, and things are not as you wish they would be, right? The house isn't clean, dinner isn't done, kids aren't behaving, whatever it is, and you respond with, after all I do, this is what I get? Who's being increased in that situation? You are. Where is Christ? He's not being increased. One could even argue he's nowhere to be found in that quote. Or when you get a phone call when you walked in the door after having a long day, or maybe it's your only day off that week, and somebody calls you and asks for help, and you respond with, How dare they interrupt my day? Whose day? yours? Where is Christ being displayed in all of that? Where is Christ being increased in all of that? Brothers and sisters, it is a daily war to live out this posture of decreasing self. But if you understand who Jesus truly is, you will respond like John the Baptist did. Not only will you decrease yourself, you will do so with complete joy. And that's where John the disciple goes next, right? Because it's necessary in order to respond with decreasing self and increasing Jesus, you must understand who Jesus is, that he is the one above all. We can often recognize attributes about people. We can start to recognize who people are based on where they come from. Sometimes we do it by the words that they use right? Do you call it soda? Do you call it pop? Or do you call it cola? Or sometimes we recognize it by the accent that people have. So John the disciple begins his commentary in verse 31 telling us where Jesus is from. He who comes from above. That's why I've titled this, the whole sermon, this, he who comes from above. But there's a truth connected here to it in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He is above all. The one who is from above existed in heaven for all of eternity. He is supreme over all things. And he contrasts it with those of the earth. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Right? Those like John the Baptist, those like John the disciple, those like you, those like me, belong to the earth. And we speak in an earthly way but not so with the one who comes from heaven, the one who is above all. He's not just above everything physically, but the essence of who he is is above everything. He is supremely sovereign over all things. And then in verse 32, we see what happens when he enters into this world. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus gives witness to these things. As the one who is from above, he bears witness about what he has seen and heard from above. He speaks of things that are way beyond what anyone on earth could possibly know about. Right? Remember what he said to Nicodemus? If you can't understand the earthly things I tell you, how could I tell you heavenly things? In all that Jesus does, there's a heavenly aspect to it. His mission, His purpose, His personhood, all of them are beyond this world. And His his words that He speaks on earth are Him describing what He knows to be true as the Son of God who has existed eternally with the Father. What He has seen and heard in eternity past, He now bears witness to. But what's the problem? The next part of verse 32. Yet no one receives his testimony. He created the world, but the world doesn't recognize him. Those who are living in darkness want to remain in the darkness as the light enters the world because they fear that they might be exposed. It's not that nobody ends up believing, right? We know that that's not true. But the point here is the the widespread response to Jesus' coming is one of disbelief. And then in verse 33, we see for those who do believe what they are confirming with their belief. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. To receive the testimony of Jesus is to receive the truth about who God is. Not only is He the Son who spent eternity with the Father, in chapter 1, John tells us He is God. The Son perfectly displays the Father. The glory of the Father is revealed perfectly in the Son. So when you hear the Son and you receive the testimony of what the Son has seen and heard, you are setting your seal on the fact that this is God speaking. That all that is being said is truth. And John offers some clarity to this in the next verse. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus' words are equal to God's words. To receive Jesus' words is to believe God's words. And then he offers one more clarifying statement. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father gives the Son the Spirit without any measure, without any limits. Up until this point in history, this has never happened before. The Spirit had been given to people, but it was always given with measure, with limits, for them to fulfill the task that they had been appointed to. Just take David, for example, right? David was anointed to be the next king after Saul, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and David has all sorts of success, and we certainly can see that success in light of the fact that the Spirit was upon him. But he didn't have unlimited access to the Spirit. Praise the Lord for that, because it would have been quite problematic giving David's record with even limited access to the Spirit. But not so with Jesus. The Father gives him the Spirit without measure. John the Baptist saw it. Remember? He said, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and remained on him. This is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament passages about the Spirit coming upon the Lord's servant, coming upon the Messiah. Let's just take one of them, for example. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Spirit comes upon the one who the Lord has anointed and he comes preaching good news to the poor. And he comes to bind the brokenhearted. And he comes to free the captives. And he he comes to see the bound released from prison. And it goes on in Isaiah 61 to tell more. But we see the point. When it says that God the Father has given the Son, the Spirit, without measure, it's saying Jesus is like any other that has come before him. He has come from heaven. He is above all. He speaks God's words. He's seen and heard it all. And if that's not enough for you, there's one final statement given about the Son and the Father. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and in that love he gives all things into the hands of the Son. Before Jesus was above all, now all things are in his hands. It's not just he's supreme in who he is. Now he has authority over all things. There's not a single moment in all of creation that happens apart from the hands of Jesus. All of it is his. Right? Like when you receive a family heirloom and it's placed in your hands, at that point you can do as you please with it. So when all things are handed into the hands of the Son, Jesus can do anything he pleases. Brothers and sisters, your desire for Jesus to increase is directly attached to your understanding of who Jesus is. When you make decisions in life to increase yourself and put Jesus off to the side, it's because you've forgotten forgotten who jesus is it doesn't mean you can't articulate the virgin birth or that he died on the cross or his resurrection but what i mean is your heart and your life are functioning in a way that has forgotten him there's a difference between you being able to mentally rattle off a bunch of words that you know to be true about jesus and actually what your heart believes in your daily life take for example if you've ever been betrayed by a friend All of us probably have. You mentally thought that person was a friend. But their actions functioned otherwise. So now your heart is left with the dilemma of what is true. Is this a friend that just messed up? Or is this someone who never was a friend and I was duped the entire time? It's the same The way you understand Jesus has a direct correlation to how you function in life. So if someone hurts you, and you choose bitterness rather than forgiveness, who are you saying Jesus is in that moment? If you choose bitterness rather than forgiveness, you're missing, you're forgetting that Jesus saved you. You're forgetting that he has forgiven you for far worse than what that person did to you. You're forgetting that you can't even pray the Lord's Prayer in that moment. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. You might claim to follow him, but in that moment, at least, you've forgotten who he is. Or if you're the type of person that feels like you need control, you have to know exactly how today's going to look. You have to know exactly where people are going to be. You have to know exactly what time everything's going to happen. At that point, you've put yourself in Jesus' spot in this passage. You've said, I have to be above all. All things have to be in my hands. I have to know exactly everything at every moment. But it's not true. Jesus reigns. Jesus is the one who's sovereign. And I promise you, Jesus will flatten any attempt of control you try to get. It's only in light of the greatness of who Jesus is that you will have a posture with the desire to decrease yourself and a posture to increase him because your belief about who Jesus is fuels your obedience to him. Which leads us to our last point. What it really means to believe in him who is from above, your belief kindles obedience. Now this concept of belief has shown up throughout the Gospel up until this point. We've seen it, especially in connection to eternal life. And it's going to continue. It's a theme throughout the whole book. We even saw at the very beginning, right, all the way in chapter 20 at the end of the Gospel, John the disciple says, I've written all these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the whole point of the book. But at the end of this passage, we see a partnership with belief and eternal life, with something else that we haven't scenes show up so explicitly at least yet. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Right? This is the familiar part. Believe and eternal life. And it's not that those who don't believe don't continue on forever. It's just that their eternal life is not one of paradise. Right? It's not that these people cease to exist. All have everlasting life, but one has eternal life, paradise, and one has a condemned life. And So we see that eternal life is for those who believe. Eternal life is received now. Though it has future implications, it's the fact that a new life is offered to you in this very moment. But it's the next part of the verse that's kind of new to us. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's take the end first. The wrath of God remains on him. Last week we saw this, right? That the world stands condemned. Right from the get-go, every single person in this world is born into sin. And they're all under the wrath of God. And that wrath remains as long as unbelief remains. But let's focus on that middle phrase. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. We could probably infer from this that the opposite is true, right? Whoever does obey will see life. So now we see a connection being made. First we have the familiar connection, belief and life. Now we have another one, obedience and life. John is switching words on us here. He's telling us that belief and obedience are two sides to the same coin. That receiving Jesus' testimony, believing in the Son, and obeying the Son are all interwoven together with each other. You see, Christians have hesitated on the idea of obedience in recent years. It's because we fear that we're going to undercut Paul, the apostle's message. Because throughout Paul's letters, he gives, salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. So we're fearful that if we put obedience in that conversation somewhere, we're going to start being like the Pharisees, teaching that you're saved by what you do, rather than by faith in Jesus. And so we end up making obedience an optional part of the Christian life, thinking, well, I believe in Jesus, and I'll try to obey when I can. I'll try to obey when it's convenient, or I'll try to obey once a week, or whatever it may be. But Jesus and the rest of Scripture never see obedience in that way. Obedience is always an indispensable part to the Christian life. It's just not your means of salvation. So I think we need to re-elevate obedience. Not that you were saved by your obedience, but we need to place an emphasis on it like Jesus and the disciples saw. Because there's a direct correlation between believing who Jesus is and obeying Jesus. Let's take an example from our current culture. Right now we have a mask mandate, Right? When you see someone in the store not wearing one, do you think they believe in the mandate? No. Disobedience is a sign of what? Disbelief. You would be appalled if someone came up to you not wearing a mask, pointed at your mask and said, you know what, I think those are a really good idea. Right? Uh, regardless of where you stand on the issue of masks and everything going on, the point is, people disobey when they don't believe. You would laugh at the thought of somebody saying, that's a great idea, but I'm not going to wear, wear one. Brothers and sisters, your belief in who Jesus is and what he has done must kindle Obedience. If you claim him as Lord and Savior, but you have no attempt in your life to look like him, you have to question what kind of belief you really have. Obedience is daily, moment-by-moment decisions to lessen yourself and increase Jesus. And obedience pertains to all parts of Scripture, even the verses you don't like. It means you choose to love your enemies those who are harshest towards you, those who bother you the most. Obedience means you sacrificially love your spouse by doing the laundry or doing the dishes instead of plopping down on the couch for the night. Obedience means not neglecting to meet with your brothers and sisters here on Sunday morning just because you had an exhausting week. Obedience means abiding in the Bible and prayer, even if you don't like to read, and even if you get jittery at the thought of silence before God. Obedience means sharing the gospel with those people around you who don't believe, even if it makes you feel awkward or if they make fun of you. And you obey in all of this. Because it's more important to you that Jesus increases and you decrease. You trust that displaying Jesus is better than getting revenge on your enemies, that Jesus is better than resting on the couch, that Jesus is better than sleeping in on Sunday, that Jesus is better than having friends or coworkers think you're not weird if you believe the truth about who Jesus is, it has to kindle obedience. So my question for you this morning is who is Jesus? This is the question you have to ask yourself because it profoundly changes how the rest of your life functions, or at least it should affect how the rest of your life functions. Is Jesus the one from heaven who is above all? Is he the one who has speak of what he has seen and and heard in relationship to the Father? Does he speak the very words of God himself? Has he been given the Spirit without measure? Has all things been placed in his hands by his Father who loves him? If all of this is true, which it is, then your belief, your trust, and your commitment in Jesus is much more than mental assertions. It's a life of obedience to all that he says. It's a life that wants to look like Jesus rather than fulfill your selfish requests. So I invite you this morning to not just say the words of John the Baptist, but to let these words define your life. Jesus died, Jesus took your wrath. And he was raised so that you would die to your old self. That Christ might live in you. That you might have new life. May this new life of yours display the beautiful statement that John the Baptist said. More of Christ, less of me. Let's pray. Father, may our hearts function in such a way that we actually live out what we say we believe about Jesus. May it be the cry of our heart that every day when we wake up, we want Jesus to be increased and we want ourselves to be decreased. May every time we're faced with an emotion or, or, or a temptation to do something that would increase ourselves or our agenda, may we, may we be faced with this passage. that Christ must increase, that we must decrease. May we then make decisions by the power of your Spirit that are honoring to you, that are pleasing to you, decisions where we say, no, not increasing myself here, but I'm going to increase Jesus. I'm going to lessen myself and make more of Him. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to try to make sure Jesus is being displayed, to make sure Jesus is being given glory in this situation. Father, may that be our hearts, not just this week, but may we have our entire lives defined by these words, that in understanding who Jesus is, that he's above all, that he's told us what he has seen and heard in relationship with you, and as we trust in him, may our hearts, our lives, our words, our minds be conformed to this truth. More of him, less of us. And we ask all of this in his precious name. Amen.